I just want to take a quick straw poll uh, before we get started, just because I'm curious. Uh, turn in your turn in your Bible while I'm, I'm asking this to the book of Haggai. Um, to the book of Haggai, we finished. I know this is shocking. We finished Ephesians last week. We finished Ephesians. The only part of Ephesians that we did not cover was Paul's farewell at the end of it. Um, he speaks to some specific people. He gives them a benediction and he says, uh, goodbye, see you next letter. Um, while you're turning to Haggai, has anyone in here, just by show of hands, ever sat under a sermon preached from the book of Haggai? How about any other minor prophet? Yes, there have been. So I saw some hands for maybe some other minor prophets. Um, I was very, 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 and am very, very excited about preaching from the book of Haggai. And in lieu of an opening illustration, um, I'll talk a little bit about the minor prophets and why I think they're important and why I think the prophets in general are important. The minor prophets are a group of generally short books. There are 12 of them right toward the end of your Old Testament. The only reason they're called minor is because of their length. It's not because they're any less important than any of the other books of the Bible, particularly other prophets. When you hear the prophets, you probably think Isaiah or Jeremiah, or maybe you think some of these towering figures from the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament. Maybe you think Elijah. I love Elijah calling fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Or, or you might think of Samuel who, who gave the word of God to the people of Israel at a time when it was rare. And You might think of these people, but you probably don't think Haggai. You probably don't think Malachi. The book of Haggai is only two chapters long. It's pretty short. Uh, these two chapters are only going to take us a few weeks uh, to get through. It's not going to be anything like Ephesians, but I do want to go ahead and tell you why the minor prophets are important. And I can give it to you. We're not even going to start the, the sermon with this, but I'll just read a phrase to you from verse 7 of chapter 1 in Haggai. It just starts out, Thus says the Lord. We could stop right there, and that should tell you why the minor prophets are important. That I believe that this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. This whole book, including the minor prophets. And y'all, when God speaks, He doesn't change His mind later. It's perfect and it's permanent. Which means what God said to His covenant people, even as far back as the Old Testament, is important for us today. Now there are a few things that are different. The promised land for us is not a geopolitical place in the Middle East called Israel. Our promised land is the new heaven and the new earth. David is not our king. The descendant of David, Jesus, is our king. There are some things that are different. But there are also a lot of things that are the same. And a lot of the issues that God's covenant people in the Old Testament, Israel had, we have today. And the prophets speak just as much to us as they did to them. So I'm excited about diving into Haggai. I've been looking forward to this all year. I have so been looking forward to this all year. Back when I planned it in January, I was praying, I was talking, and I kind of sat it down on my calendar and it came up and I said, Jesus, you really want me to preach Haggai? 
And as things kept going on and the year kept going on and stuff kept happening, Jesus just over and over, yes, I really want you to preach Haggai. So we're going to dive into this today and I'm going to be super excited to do so. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read through the first 11 verses of chapter 1 in the book of Haggai today. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glad, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that you change our hearts through your spirit using it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Title of our sermon, Is It Time Yet? God asked this question a couple of times of his people uh, in this uh, initial passage. And he asks this question because the central problem in the book of Haggai, the whole problem in this book is that the people of Israel has decided or have decided that it is okay for them to put the house of God on hold while they prioritize the house of self. That is the problem this whole book. And it's a real simple problem. Haggai only takes two chapters to talk about it. And you know, it's actually funny uh, reading some research and and reading some commentaries and getting ready for this. There are a ton of commentators that kind of hesitate and skip skip a little bit on this book because they say this book just seems really materialistic and shallow compared to the other prophets. The other prophets are talking about idols. You need to worship the Lord your God and Him only. And talking about pagan religions. Why are you getting involved with them? And they talk about loving the widow and the fatherless and the poor. And they talk about all these things. And Haggai's like, build the temple instead of building your own house. It seems pretty shallow in comparison, but it's not. It's not shallow in comparison at all. In fact, it's every bit as deep as the rest of every other prophet. And God is very frustrated with His people's choice to do this. So I want us to look at a few points today that show us that God may respond to us in the exact same way that He responded to them. 
when we do the same thing they did. Whenever we choose to build our house at the expense of building God's house, don't be surprised when God does not help you in your endeavors. So first, I want us to look at verse 1. It is not right to build our kingdom at the expense of God's kingdom. In verse 1, we get this long list. Well, not really long list, but we get a list of names and places that we may not know who many of them are. Uh, first, it says in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month. Um, this is not necessarily the same Darius that you think of when you think Daniel. Um, Uh, This is not that same Darius. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. What do we know about Haggai? Who is this guy? The scholarly, educated, seminary trained answer is, y'all know as much about who Haggai is as I do. He's only mentioned a, a couple of times in the Bible, the majority of them in the book named after him. We don't get the name of his dad. We don't get his family name. We don't get any other information about him other than the fact that he's a prophet. Who is Zerubbabel? Well, he is is in the line of David. He has been appointed the governor of Judah by the Persian king. So, no, he's not totally in charge, but he still is regionally in charge, and he is descended from David. And who is Joshua? Not the same Joshua as you think of Joshua in the book named after Joshua in the Old Testament. This is the high priest at the time. So you've got the political leader of the the region and the spiritual leader of the, the nation all wound up in this first verse here. God is addressing them all. He's addressing all the people. He's addressing the governor. He's addressing the high priest. And he's using this man named Haggai to do it. And what is it that God says? The time has not yet come. Verse 2. The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. This was what the children of Israel were saying. Uh, Now, when it says the people says it, it's kind of like what you see on TV and what you read on Facebook. If people say it, it must be true, right? No, um, that, that's not the case. That you got a bunch of people saying, well, it's not time to build the Lord's house. It's not time to deal with that. We got other things that have to be taken care of first. That I know the temple is in ruins, but you don't understand. The AC in my Middle Eastern hut is out. Um, my, my retirement could really use some extra funding. You know, my camel's got a flat tire. You know, this kind of stuff. That there's always an excuse as to why I cannot pay the kingdom of God the attention that it deserves. And this is God's main complaint toward Israel throughout the entirety of this book. Now, I told you there are some differences between the Old Testament and the New, and it's time to point one of those out. In the Old Testament, the house of God was the temple. It was the center of Israelite worship. From the time that God gave the designs of it in the wilderness all the way to the point where it was built permanently in the promised land under Solomon, the temple was the center of their worship. If there is no temple... Now listen, this is true even today. If there is no temple, there is no Judaism. Well, that's not true, Josh. I know some Jews... Yes, you do. And they have no temple, so they cannot obey the law. 
If there is no temple, there is no Judaism because you can't sacrifice. You don't have a priest. You can't obey all the things God told you to do. If there is no temple, there is no worship the way God told the Jews to worship. Now, in the New Testament, we don't require a temple. Why? Because this is the temple. This right here. The Holy Spirit dwells here now. He doesn't dwell in a building built with hands. He dwells in each and every person who has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We have been purified so that the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. We don't need a building. So when we talk about the house of God, this building is not God's house. This building is a place where God's house gathers. The house of God is His church. This building is where the church gathers. Does that make sense? That there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New. The word church didn't mean a building until 300 AD. Until 300 AD, when you said church, people understood you to be talking about people. So, so maybe we should stop saying we go to church and maybe we should start saying be the church. Maybe. It's possible. So in the Old Testament, when God is talking about building my temple, building my house, we in the New Testament, we should be thinking building my church. Building my kingdom. Building where I dwell in. In other words, doing the work of the ministry to see the kingdom of God grow. Are people being saved? Is the gospel being shared? Is the kingdom of God growing? God is frustrated with the Israelites because they didn't want to build a physical temple. God might be frustrated with our church because we put more concern on building our kingdom than we do sharing the gospel and seeing His grow. Yeah, I told you, the, pro- the prophets start speaking real loud when you start listening. And just wait. We might do Amos later, and he- he- he's real fun. But Haggai-, Haggai doesn't pull any punches. So the word of the Lord came by, verse, verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, now listen, before I read this verse, this is God. This is the Lord Himself speaking. Verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? God is taking the statement of His people, well, it's just not time. We've got other things that we need to do first before we build this temple. We've got other concerns that have to be taken care of before this gets done. And God says, really? You don't have time to see my house built, but you've got plenty of time to see your house built. God calls them onto the carpet. He said, we've got to talk about your priorities here. Because the issue for Israel wasn't that it wasn't time. The issue was they didn't find it in themselves to make the time. I'm going to say something that will convict every single one of us. You make time for what is important. 
There are two ways that you can tell what is important to somebody without fail. And, and, and neither one of them re- require the use of their tongue. You can tell what's important to somebody by what, what their calendar is full of and what their checkbook is full of. Where do they spend their money? Where do they spend their time? And God calls them out for both of them right here. You don't have any resources to build my house because you're too busy building yours. You don't have any time to build a house because you're too busy building yours. It's not that the resources aren't there. It's not that the time isn't there. It's that it has been apportioned in an improper way. And excuses were being made and God wasn't having any of it. I'll tell you how I know that it's a problem of priorities. These are on your handout. I'm sorry if you didn't pick one up. I was silly. One day I will remember that we're not coming in that door. We're coming in this one. And I'll put them right there. But if you were fortunate enough to get a handout, Ezra chapter 3 verse 2. Then Jeshua, this is the same as the Joshua in this book, by the way. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God in Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Well, wait a minute. I thought you told me that the temple wasn't built. It wasn't. They started with the altar. They go back. They come back from captivity and they come back into the land. They've been out of the promised land for years and years and years. And oh, there's this celebration and they build the altar. Now we can start sacrificing to God again and we'll get the temple rebuilt and everything will be great, right? Well, they get the altar built. Then Ezra 5.16, Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, when's the last time you drove to Augusta and didn't see road work somewhere? It's everywhere. Does it ever seem to you like road work never finishes? It is perpetually under construction. This is worse than that. The people started out. We're going to build the altar. We're going to get serious about this religion business now. I know nobody's ever heard anything like that. We're going to get serious about this worshiping God thing. We're going to build the altar. We're going to rebuild the temple. This is going to be great. We're going to have... We're going to be back in the the great days of Israel, worshiping God in the promised land. They get the altar built, they get the foundation built, and then they they find a leak in their roof. And, oh, i got to fix that leak. Once I get that leak fixed in my roof, well, now while I'm working on it, you know, it would really be nice if I could change that flooring out over there. They start working on flooring in their house. and And then, oh, it would be really great if I could, you know, you know, buy a new, whatever, you know, while I'm improving things, well, we, we stop. we'll get back to it. We've got the foundation started. We'll finish it eventually. And do you know what? They never did. They started with the altar. 
got just enough worship in to ease their conscience. They laid a foundation, got just enough started that they can be convinced that they built something, but then they quit. Because they found other things they would rather do. That they didn't have any time. I know, I know I'm about to, to jump eras here. They worshiped on the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday, but I'm going to just kind of modernize it a little bit. That they couldn't find it in themselves. Well, I don't have time to get up and be in church on Sunday morning because I just I was out so late the night before. I just I I I can't. Yes, I'm going to say it because Scripture allows me to. I can't. I can't give any money to, to the church for the church to function because I've got so much debt. On what? On that car? On that boat? Disclaimer, I don't know anybody in here who owns a boat. If you do, I did not single you out. But if God's stomping on your toes, I won't try and stop Him either. On that boat? On that house that was too big that you shouldn't have bought bigger than you could afford? Now the Bible says the borrower is the slave to the lender. Are you so in debt that you can't afford to give God his tithe? What about time? Well, I just, I don't have time to serve. Really? Well, let's look at your calendar. What do you have time to do? Well, I would love to have my children in church, grandparents, parents. I would love to have my grandchildren in church, but there's just so much they're involved in. Do you know they grow up and they learn that pattern? They grow up and they learn that it is perfectly appropriate and normal to put the things of God on the back burner because you'll always have time for them later. Well, what God's saying right here in Haggai is this doesn't make sense to me that you leave my temple in ruins and you build your own house. Y'all, it made God angry. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 27 through 30. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is about discipleship, okay? If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself saved, if you say the blood of Jesus has covered me and forgiven me of all my sins, that I belong to Him, I am His and He is mine, that ought to be reflected in the way you live your life. And the way you live your life includes what you do with your money and what you do with your time. That is what Haggai is addressing. Listen to what Jesus said. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Have you maybe built an altar, laid a foundation? Maybe you come to church a couple of times and you get just enough religion, quote unquote, to ease your conscience. And then you go back and keep living your life the way you were living it, and you had nothing's different. But you got your altar built, you got your foundation laid, and you're serious about it. You'll just get back to it eventually. It's there. I've started work on it, but I got other things I got to deal with first. Count the cost. Lest one day you be mocked as someone who began but was not able to finish. And let me tell you something, heart to heart, pastor to a congregation that I love very, very, very much. I never make assumptions about who I'm looking at. I never make assumptions about whether or not somebody is saved. Because the only heart that I know is mine. I can take your word for it and I can look at your life. But I've had people in my life before that I am totally 100% convinced that they know and love the Lord Jesus. And then they go and just dive off the rails head first and never come back into a church building again. Listen, if you're fake, eventually it's going to show. You can't keep it up forever. Eventually your fakeness will show. And you know, eventually your realness will show too. Because here's where the rubber hits the road. What, what's important is what you make time for. Now I'm not saying that every single one of us doesn't have times where our priorities sinfully get out of whack. But at least for a Christian, it will bother you. If you're here today and you care nothing about the kingdom of God, you could not care less about it. Maybe you're here today to get just enough religion to make yourself happy. To ease that conscience. To make you feel like a little bit better person. I'm going to tell you on the authority of the Word of God. Here's what you do. it. You built up an altar and you built up a foundation and you did just enough to ease your conscience that you'd get serious about it eventually and then you're going home to build your own house. And God is not satisfied with that. If the blood of Jesus had covered you, you will be concerned about the things of God. You will look out at Stapleton and you will see lost people and you will say, what can we do to reach them? You'll look at your children and your grandchildren and your brothers and sisters, maybe your husband or wife, and say, dear God, this is a lost soul. Won't you save them and show me how you want to use me to do it? If you're concerned about your own house, here's how this works out. Oh, well, God, you know, I, I joined. I got dumped. Occasionally, I'll, you know, give a little bit. They got folks there who will take care of the evangelism and stuff. I'll just go every so often. No. No, I don't believe you're saved. If that's your attitude toward Jesus Christ, I don't believe you're saved. I just flat don't. You know, the Bible defines marriage, or defines the relationship with Christ in, in terms of almost like a marriage. You know, say, say, saying, I, I know the Lord, but I, I don't care all that much about going to church. You know, I just I can't find the time. That's like saying I'm married to somebody, but I only go home about once a quarter. Hug them, kiss them, tell them I love them. 
We give them some chocolates or a fishing rod and then come back three months later. You don't love that person. You're just trying to ease your conscience. I told you, prophets are fun. Second point, and by the way, I don't, don't mistake what I'm saying for you need to work harder. This is not an issue of how hard you're working. This is an issue of your heart. I'm not telling you that God's happier with you based on how hard you work. What I'm telling you is how happy you are with God is going to affect how hard you work. The reason God was frustrated with the Israelite people is not because they weren't working hard enough. It's because they didn't love Him. Because they didn't love Him, they weren't working. And God called them out. God told them, you love yourself more. Which is why, it is point two, it is not accurate to believe that you can do so, that you can build your kingdom instead of God's and experience real comfort. Listen to what God says in verse 5. Now therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, examine your life, look at the way you live, look at the way you spend your money, look at the way you spend your time, consider it. You have sown much and bring in little. When you go out in the field and sow, does it produce well for you? Maybe you're not actually a farmer, maybe, you're, maybe you have a business. Does it produce well for you? First, let me ask you this. Do you call yourself a Christian? Does your, does your business produce well for you? Do you get out of it what you think it should? Or are you frustrated that the ground brings forth thorns and thistles and rebels against you? What about that? You eat, but you don't have enough. When you sit down to eat, do you find that it doesn't matter how much or what quality food you put in your mouth, you just never seem to be satisfied. It's never exactly what you were looking for. It doesn't make you happy. You're not satisfied. Your belly might be full, but it's just that doesn't hit the spot. This next one's a doozy. When it, when it says you drink, but you're not filled with drink, I love my new King James, but they whitewashed it a little bit. They covered it over with a coat of paint to make it a little bit more palatable. That word filled with drink means drunk. You know what God's saying to them through Haggai right now? He says, yeah, you go try and sit down and you try and drown your sorrows. Have you noticed that you can't seem to do that? That it doesn't matter how much you chug down, your problems are still there when you sober up. They're not gone. All you do is you end up miserable puking and can't remember what you did the day before. And guess what? You wake up after blacking out and your problems are still there. You drink and you drink and you drink and, and, and you can't get drunk enough for your problems to be gone. You put on your clothes and go outside. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. The most annoying thing, and now that it's fall, we can talk about this and understand it. Isn't it annoying when you put on, like you dress up to go out in the cold, and maybe you put your, your wind jacket on, and you walk, and you think there's no possible way I could be bundled up any better than I am, and you walk outside, and you get in the car, and then you get out, and you're 45 minutes away from home, and the wind starts blowing, and you find out that there's one place in your clothes the wind can get in. And you just stay cold the rest of the day. Because you don't have anything else to cover up with. You're cold. 
God says you just put on your clothes and you bundle up and you think you're prepared, but you just you can't ever get warm. There's no comfort there. <clears throat> he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. How many of you have ever felt like this? You go to work, you clock in, you work all day, you earn your wages, and it seems like by the time you get home on payday, your paycheck is gone. I will never forget the first job I ever got. I was so excited. I had looked at my time card. I had looked at the hours that were on it. And I had done my little naive 16-year-old paycheck math. And I said, okay, minimum wage. I can't remember what it was then. Time this many hours. My check going to be this much. <laughs> I was so excited. I got my paycheck. Where did it go? Mama said, welcome to taxes, son. Lord, 20% of it was gone before I even got my hands on it. And then I had to drop another $45 in my truck before I even got to the house to fill it up so I could drive to even go back to work. And that was before I had to do things like buy food. Yes. Every, every single one of us knows that in here, and if you don't, you're lying. That's something else. You, you know how it feels. But God's telling you, it's something different. It's just like you're putting your money in your pockets and there's holes in there. It doesn't go anywhere. And God doesn't explain it yet, but He says, verse 7, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. This is God subtly giving you a hint. If you want to know why your life experience is this way, it is because you have prioritized yourself instead of me. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, listen to what God said. I blew it away. Uncle Sam didn't take it. Your boss didn't take it. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover didn't take it. God blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. That God looks at his covenant people. In the Old Testament, that's the Jews. In the New Testament, that's the church. God looks at his covenant people and says, if you have your priorities out of whack, if you care more about your kingdom than mine, do not expect my help in building your kingdom. Do not expect my material blessing when you are attempting to bless yourself. Do not expect me to help you prosper in what you need for this world if you have neglected the things of the next world. 
God says to us today, if you do not care about the lost person down the street, I don't care about your bank account. If you do not care about evangelism where I have put you to be a witness, I don't care about the fact that your paycheck doesn't seem to go that far. In fact, it might not even be that he doesn't care. It might be that he is actively making sure it doesn't go that far. Does this sound like the God of Sunday school? No, this is, this is the God of the Bible, y'all. I mean, am I, am I wrong? God said, I blew it away, didn't he? And God says it's because they have neglected His house. They have neglected His kingdom. C.S. Lewis said God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. If you are trying to find happiness in your your vineyard, your field, wherever it is you sow your seed, wherever you run your business, if you are trying to find fulfillment there and you ignore the things of God so that you can work, and I'm, y'all, listen, I know some of you have to work on Sunday. There's no way around it. I understand that. That's not what I'm talking about. When you don't have a choice, that's something that you've got to do. Because God said, you know, the one who doesn't take care of his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I get that. There is a difference between putting food on the table for your family and greed. This is why it blows everybody's mind. Chick-fil-A will never make enough money if they're closed on Sunday. Go through that drive through at lunch on Saturday and see how that works. Well, I just, I could make enough to get by on if I work Monday through Saturday, but man, Sunday's a lot of money to leave on the table. Don't be surprised if he blows it away. Don't be surprised. It is a lie of the devil to believe that God is just being stubborn or arrogant by saying you can't be happy without me. That doesn't mean he won't allow you to. That means it's actually possible because there, it, it's actually impossible. There is no happiness or peace from God. I'm not endorsing a prosperity gospel viewpoint. I am not saying that if you build God's kingdom, then he's going to build yours. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you give money to the church, God will give money to you. I'm not saying if you give attention to the church, God will give attention to you. That's not what I'm saying. God is not a cosmic Pez dispenser in which you put a quarter or toy dispenser. You put in a quarter and pull the, light, the knob and God sends you a little blessing down. That's not the way it works. What I'm saying is that if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and you've been forgiven, you ought to want to praise Jesus, hadn't you? You ought to want to glorify God, hadn't you? You ought to want to serve God, hadn't you? What it tells me when I see somebody who doesn't care about the church, who doesn't care about God's covenant people, they don't care about God. And it, and it does not matter what they say. It does not. It doesn't matter if they've been a church member for 25 years. Somebody can have their name in a roll book and their heart as far away from Jesus as it can possibly be. 
You can also have your seat in a pew and your mind in hell. Was it my old pastor used to say, you can go to hell just as fast from a pew as you can from a bar stool. It's about your heart. Just because you sit in here, that doesn't make a difference. Where's your heart? Whose kingdom are you interested in building? Are you interested in God's or are you interested in yours? Listen to the last time God said this. Then to Adam He said, Genesis 3, 17, 18. To Adam He said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. That because Adam and Eve did not believe God, they did not value His word over all else, God cursed their material production in working the land. It's not going to be as easy for you because of your disobedience to me. He did it there. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11, 29-31, New Testament. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, talking about the Lord's Supper, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. God physically, materially judged His covenant people because of their priorities. Their priority wasn't remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Their priority was getting full and getting drunk in the church in Corinth. That's what they did at the Lord's Supper in that church. And Paul had to call them out. You're not interested in remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. You're tripping over yourselves to beat the poor people to the Lord's Supper table so that you can eat all the bread and drink all the wine. And just like any other parent with disobedient children, eventually when they're out playing, when they disobey long enough, the parent says, get in the car, I'm taking you home. That's what God did to them. Okay, you've done enough, I'm taking you home. So consider your ways. That it is not accurate to believe that you can build your kingdom instead of God's and experience real comfort. I'm not saying that God is going to smite you anytime your heart's priorities take a detour, but I am saying that we don't need to rule out the discipline of God in our lives just because we have a fantasy picture of who we think God is based on the latest touchy-feely song we heard on WAFJ. That the God of the Bible cares about the way we spend our time and our money and our lives. What are the priorities of your heart? And then finally, it is not smart to expect God to help you worship your own kingdom. Look at verse 10 and 11. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. The people are no longer worshiping God. How do I know? They didn't care anything about the things of God. They cared about the things of themselves. So my next question is, who are you here for this morning? Are you here for Him, or are you here for you? What do I mean by that? Well, I'm at church. Obviously, I'm here for God. Not necessarily. You can be at church for you. Here's the way this works out. Have I checked off my box so that my conscience doesn't plague me when I lay down to go to sleep? 
If you're here to check ops, you're not here for God. You're here for you. Are you here so that somebody else will see you here? You're not here for God. You're here for you. Are you here because... I used to hear a joke. You know, folks said when I was a kid going to church, I had a drug problem. My parents drugged me there and they drugged me home. Are you here because you have a drug problem? Maybe your husband or your wife drug you here. And you're here just so they'll leave you alone. You're not here for him. You're here for you. It's very possible to not be here for God. It's possible you're here for you. But sometimes there, y'all, sometimes there are legitimate reasons to not be able to be here on Sunday morning. There are medical issues. There are family emergencies. Sometimes things come up. But there are plenty of reasons that folks don't, don't involve themselves in the work of the kingdom of God that aren't excuses. I never understood. And y'all, I'm the biggest sports fan ever. Okay? You know this. There's a reason I'm wearing a red tie today. And there's a reason I'm thankful I don't see hardly any orange here today. <laughs> but, as a pastor, as a Christian, I never understood churches that canceled church on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not talking about they did a church fellowship event that night. I don't mean that. I mean, they said, we're not going to have church on Sunday night, on Super Bowl Sunday, because none of our people will come. <clears throat> Who were they worshiping on Sunday night? Well, let me tell you something. If you're in the state of Georgia and you cancel church for the Super Bowl, you worship a real faulty God in the Falcons. They will fail you every time. I know. Sports, work, extracurricular activities, social functions. Well, I was just busy. I had this going on, so I couldn't be at church that day. No, you could. Don't say I couldn't be in church. Say I wouldn't be in church. Let's be accurate. When you abandon the things of God, you have not ceased worshiping. You have merely changed the object of your worship. You will always be worshiping someone or something. It's a matter of who or what that is. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. And this came up in Sunday school this morning. Well, I gotta work. I've got to work. I've got to build my kingdom. I've got to build my house. I've got to build my reputation. I've got to build my stuff, and I'll get to God's stuff later. Deuteronomy 8.18, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now, that's all well and good. Verse 19. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, 
I testify against you this day, you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Y'all, I'm not trying to... I know this sermon seemed heavy. But there's hope and there's promise in this too. When your heart is right with God... When your soul is overjoyed with Jesus, when you, are, when, you're, when you are first and foremost a temple of the Holy Spirit, overjoyed to be a child of God and to be in His presence day in and day out, you know what? You can be hungry and be happy. You can have a small paycheck and be overjoyed. Because you got Jesus. You can have a little and know that you've got it all. If your heart's right with Jesus. If you know that your relationship with the God of the universe is made right by the shed blood of His Son Christ, you can't hurt me. You can't take that from me. You can't make, I can't lack anything. Some of the early church fathers mocked Rome and they said, what's the worst you can do? Kill me? Listen, if you don't have Jesus, eat all you want, drink all you want, work all you want, build all you want, clothe yourself in whatever you want. You will never be happy. That's not an opinion. That's not a suggestion. That's the truth. And if you think I'm lying, go ahead. Keep living. Remember what the little redneck preacher said in that little small church. You heard him say that. That, that you, can, you can do all you want and you will never be satisfied. Why? Because you weren't made to be satisfied by that. You were made to be satisfied by Jesus. So my humble suggestion to you today is if you are a Christian and you find that there is no satisfaction and joy in your life, whose kingdom have you been trying to build? Because if you're trying to build your own, God is not helping you. In fact, He might be working against you. If you are not a Christian today and you can't be satisfied, again, you're looking at the wrong kingdom. Come to Christ, concern yourself with the things of the kingdom of God, and find real joy. Find real forgiveness. Find real peace. Joyce and Abby are about to leave us in a couple of verses of a hymn. And I'm going to pray. For God to work in your heart on the word that you have just heard today. If you need to come...